One thing I love about Cleveland, there's a lot I love about Cleveland, but one thing I really love about Cleveland is that there's no traffic. Like I always joke about people back home in Chicago that if you if you miss it after two o'clock, you're stuck on Lakeshore Drive for twelve hours. You're just you're you're going nowhere. And it's a little hyperbole, twelve hours, but I have I have been in traffic for hours with an S. And it's incredibly annoying. One thing I wanted in life when I got older is the ability to be in a place that didn't have a lot of traffic. One thing we get we just get wrong in life, like I think five hundred years, a thousand years from now. I think civilizations at that point are going to look back at us and say we spent so much time in our cars, it's insane. And maybe at that point they'll have flying cars and they'll have like rows and rows of people, uh, cars that just go and it's like 25 rows high and everyone's got their lanes up in the sky and you're just able to like make it whatever way you want to. I don't know. I've watched a Jetsons episode once or twice. I don't know how this is going to go. Can't tell you. But I do always find fascinating the idea that we've just spent so much time in our cars and we get it so, so wrong. But here in Cleveland, it's so nice because you don't always have traffic. And it's very rare that you have traffic. I, I believe in my drives in to this radio station, I get traffic maybe twice, maybe three times a year where there's an accident, there's a something. And so it's been about two or three months since I've been backed up in any sort of traffic accident. 23 minutes door to door for myself. All right, door-to-door is not fair because I actually park, like, a few blocks away from work because it's a little cheaper, and then I walk to work from there. But I'm like, like, from my door to the parking garage is 23 minutes. And I got in my car, and I didn't think about it. I didn't input the maps in my in my little console to say to come to work, the one that would tell me if something bad was going on, the one that would tell me if there was, you know, roads I need to avoid, that one, and I'm driving, and then I hit the part of the highway where I understood I was in deep doo-doo. And that is the absolute worst, because I looked down, and I wanted to yell at the little console. And I don't actually yell, but I want to get mad at the console and be like, where was the warning? You know, almost like you had one job, and I hadn't put it in. I completely avoided the most important part of the trip, which is the part that would tell me whether or not I need to go a completely different direction. Now, fortunately for myself, Cleveland doesn't have bad roads. And so what turned out to be what was going to be like a half hour delay turned out to be about a 10 minute delay. And I was on time and everything was fine. But for there was like a there was like a maybe like a 15 minute stretch there where all I could do is yell about myself and yell at myself. It's absolutely miserable. Two one six four seven four to below ninety two. Dan up next on the fan. What's up, Dan? Hey, guy. Hey, I have hey, um, a thought, please, if you would try to answer it anyway. Uh, Nick and uh, Dusty talked about wide receivers, and they talked about everybody whom I happen to think is the answer would be incredible if we could get him, and that's Marvin Harrison Jr. I have saw his whole career. Yeah, we're not, him him now. we're not getting him now. We're not getting him. I understand. Yeah. We have no draft choices. We got nothing to offer, do we? He's going to go in the top five, and we yes. don't we don't have any draft picks to begin with anyway. So we're not. I know. Yeah, we're I not. Just, I needed to call you at least get it out there, you know. Sure. Hey, Dan, put it out in the universe. See what happens, right? I mean, he's six five. He's strong. Uh, he's going to be rookie of the year. I'll bet. Yeah. And he would be the answer. But anyway, I understand. All right. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate Bye. you. All right now. All right. If if we got, I'm just thinking about how excited Bone would be if if the Browns somehow find a way to land Marvin Harrison Jr. <laughs> He's going to go in the top five. He is going to 
instantly transform whatever offense he's in. I don't know that he's going to win rookie of the year. Only because we're going to have so many quarterbacks that play. You know, if uh, if Caleb Williams replicates what C.J. Stroud does, it doesn't matter what any wide receiver in the league does. It doesn't matter. Just do, it just does not matter. There's just you could be a one of one. It doesn't matter. It's a quarterback award first and foremost. You would need every quarterback to basically vomit all over their shoes in order for Marvin Harrison Jr. to get it. Now you want to talk about like landing spots for Marvin Harrison Jr. You know, the the early sentiment was that he was going to end up in Chicago and he'd be able to play alongside Justin Fields. And then Chicago ended up getting number one overall, and that just completely it dissipated. It went away. It just it's not going to happen for a lot of different reasons, but it's not going to happen unless unless they use that second pick of theirs. And if MH if MHJ can go ahead and land in Chicago because of that. That would be fascinating. I think the Titans got to replace A.J. Brown at some point after he was traded in 2022. The Giants need a wide receiver in the worst way. They've been trying to replace really OBJ since 2019. They got Darius Slayton, Robinson, Paris Campbell. I mean, they've given Daniel Jones basically no help outside of Saquon Barkley, and Saquon Barkley is not doing anything in the pass-catching realm. Patriots, I think, could use a wide receiver. Cardinals could use a wide receiver. Help out Kyler Murray just a little bit. Three of the Cardinals' top four receivers are five foot nine or shorter. More Marquise Hollywood Brown, Greg Dortch, Harrison at six four two oh five would instantly give them length. It would give them speed, and it would add a different dynamic to the offense right now that Arizona just doesn't have. The pairing of Murray and Harrison could be exactly what gets Arizona headed in the right direction. It could also be the type of thing that you look back on like five, ten years from now, and you're like, wait, why Why did they put him with Kyler Murray? Kyler Murray's not he's not able to figure it out. Jury's still out on Kyler Murray. I don't love that he's the last one in, first one out. I don't love that when they gave him the big-time extension, it was with a work-hard clause that mandated that he, he, he put in enough hours of film study each week. I mean, it was insane. Put down the controller. Put down the sticks. He's a big video game guy. And get get to work. What are you doing, Kyler? You're about to blow it all. And then the Bears. I think the Bears are the best landing spot, but I think there's a couple of things at play here. DJ Moore and Marvin Harrison Jr. would be obviously unreal. There's no doubt about it. It would also, and this is what I love, but I don't know... How it works entirely, because I don't know. We're about to we're about to test this out with CJ Stroud and what they have in Houston. If you draft Marvin Harrison Jr. and Caleb Williams at the same exact time in the same draft, you're on the same timeline. So the same year you gotta pay Caleb Williams the bag is the same year you gotta pay Marvin Harrison Jr. the bag. And you would go from having and, and listen, the, the the Bears right now have a bunch of cap space. They got some flexibility, but you would go from having Pennies on the dollar at two of the highest paid positions in the sport. It goes quarterback, defensive end, wide receiver. Wide, bad wide receivers, fine. Mediocre wide receivers are getting $20 million a year. That's the going rate. You would have to pay both of them at the same time in a way that I don't know is 100% reasonable. But if that's your answer, that's your answer. 
But again, like the, the Bengals are going to find a way to figure it out between Jamar Chase and Joe Burrow. It's just whether or not they can add T. Higgins. But what does this do to their offense? This is, I love talking about these things because it's so it relates perfectly to the Browns. Moment you got Amari Cooper, and the moment you have to actually start paying Deshaun Watson year in year out, and that's that, that's coming. You can't just keep kicking that can down the road. That's coming. Right now, you're paying Deshaun Watson two years after Deshaun Watson theoretically never throws a snap for you again. Because that's what we keep doing and kicking that can down the road. And at some point, the bill does come due. You can put everything in the world on credit card. At some point, that bill does come through. You have to eventually pay that thing off. And for the for the Bears, I don't know when exactly that would be. But for the Browns, that's coming sooner rather than later. But if you had Marvin Harrison Jr. and Caleb Williams basically on the same timeline, I don't know. That's pretty fascinating. I don't know. how You don't miss there. You, you don't miss there. All right, I want to play this clip for you guys because I, I honestly, there was a couple thoughts I had before we get into this from Jason Lloyd, and Jason Lloyd was talking about the play-calling dynamic. I do wonder, Cam Newton has not been brought up in the Ken Dorsey conversation at all, and I, I, I did wonder if Cam Newton co-signed the Ken Dorsey hire to Deshaun. I'm just connecting some of the dots that are out there in front for everyone to connect, but I haven't seen anyone really connecting these quite yet. Deshaun goes on, or sorry, Deshaun has... Cam Newton on his podcast last week. The podcast that he does with Quincy. Mockerverse podcast, I think is what it's called on YouTube. YouTube podcast everywhere else, right? And he has Cam Newton on there. And Cam Newton right now is very big in the in the social media space. He's basically trying to create his own big platform that could rival ESPN, which sounds insane. But the way Cam Newton is doing it, as far as the, excuse me, Live commentary sports section of the internet is concerned. I think he's coming as close as anybody's able to. He doesn't have live sports. He's got live commentary. And his sports media live commentary channels are coming as close to basically anybody out there in the game. So Deshaun has Cam Newton on. And when Deshaun had him on, they didn't talk about Ken Dorsey in the slightest bit. But I would imagine behind closed doors... It's not an accident. Ken Dorsey was the quarterback's coach for Cam Newton in Carolina. He went 15-1. and That was the year he won the MVP and lost in the Super Bowl. Cam Newton had his highest of highs with Ken Dorsey around him. It wouldn't surprise me if during at some point in that conversation, before or after, whenever, when the mics weren't on, maybe they took a break or something and had some like coffee and they talked and maybe they had a meal together. I have no idea. But at some point, They had to have discussed Ken Dorsey. And at some point then, Deshaun Watson, I would imagine, came up with the brilliant idea to move that one along to the front office. Like, everyone was so weird about it. They're like, well, why Why is there no connection to Deshaun Watson in the Ken Dorsey hire? Why didn't they go with Coach X, Y, or Z that already dealt with Deshaun in Houston? I don't think that's what he needed necessarily. I just think he needed someone like Cam Newton to co-sign for him. I think he needed someone like Cam Newton to say, hey, Can you vouch for this guy? And then Cam Newton was like, yes, I can. Or it worked the other way around. Before they got on the podcast, after they got on the podcast, maybe they're talking and texting afterwards. Who who the hell knows? Maybe at some point, because Cam Newton is such good friends with Ken Dorsey, maybe at some point Cam Newton reached out to Deshaun Watson and said, my boy from Buffalo, the one that was the offensive coordinator there, and the one that was by my side when I went 15-1 and one in one league MVP, he's open and he's exactly what you need. I need to know these answers. Did this come from Stefanski? 
Did this come from Haslam? Did this come from Dee Podesta? Or was this the type of connecting of the dots that I'm talking about right now? 216474 to below 92. Who had the say in this one? Who got to make that hire? I find it fascinating. Jason Lloyd on the morning show, he went into some of that and the play calling as well. A lot of times I poo-poo, like, I roll my eyes at the play calling, and I think it's overblown. But in this instance, like, there's a lot of questions about, and that still have, really haven't answered, about why AVP is out, why Ken is here, who's going to be calling the plays. There's just a lot of uncertainty with how this whole thing went down and whose call was it and why were these decisions made. And I don't think, I know I don't have the clarity on it. I've got pretty good suspicions and pretty good theories, but I don't have any clarity or confirmation on how this whole thing went down. And I am a little bit troubled by how all this looks right now, for sure. Yeah. Kevin did an unbelievable job of calling plays last year. Play calling was not the issue, and yet they're overhauling this whole thing. And obviously they're doing it to fit the quarterback, and I get it. He's $230 million. He's the focal point of this whole thing. He's the most powerful figure in the organization. I get it. But it's just a little troubling when your head coach could win coach of the year for the second time in four years, and we're back to this whole nonsense about offensive coordinator and who should be calling the plays. I agree with Jason. It's troubling for a couple different reasons. One, we don't know who made the hire. I connected the dots for Deshaun Watson and Ken Dorsey through Cam Newton. That would make a lot of sense to me. But maybe Kevin Zabanski just always loved Ken Dorsey. Maybe. Doesn't seem likely, but maybe. Maybe Dee Podesta loves Ken Dorsey. I'm not entirely sure. I need these answers. Like, I need air to breathe. I need these answers. But is it alarming to you guys that they might actually overhaul this whole entire thing? They might. There's another equation that came up with this within the play calling that I hadn't considered. I've been telling you guys for weeks now, weeks, that I thought Stefanski would never give up the play calling. Well, there's one scenario that would lead him to do that, and I'll explain what that is. I want your input. Two one six four seven four to below ninety two. Who actually got to make the hire, and what does it all mean for Kevin Stefanski? That and more from Jason Lloyd. It's overtime with Jonathan Peterlin here with you on the fan. Kevin Stefanski would kind of take a little bit of a back seat. Is that troubling to you guys if that's the outcome? Listen, I'm not saying I would be pleased by it by any stretch of the measure. I'm not rooting for that to happen because I believe that Kevin Stefanski is good at this. I'm concerned about whether or not this was Kevin Stefanski's call because I don't believe it would be. I have no knowledge to base that off of outside of what I've been telling you guys now for four-plus years. Anytime the conversation comes up with Kevin Stefanski and play calling, I remind every one of you guys that will listen, this is what he thinks he's great at. He thinks he's Kyle Shanahan. He thinks he's Sean McVay. And I don't mean that in some sort of slight to him. I, I, he's, he's not too far off. It's like when people uh, joke about, like, uh, you know, great radio host and all that other stuff. It's like, all right, you're hosting in Cleveland. JP, you're not that far off. You're not Howard Stern. No, but you're not that far off, all things considered. How many how many people are uh, between me and Dan Patrick right now? 50? There's not, there's not many. There's enough, but there's not many. How many people are between Kevin Stefanski and being Sean McVeigh? 20? 15? Maybe even 10? There's not many that are in between those two. I know it might sound delusional from myself. And from Kevin Stefanski. But you don't get to a certain spot unless you believe in yourself. You don't get to a certain spot unless you really do believe that you can hang with the big boys. And for Kevin Stefanski, he believes that this is what he's great at. He got hired because of his play calling duties. I don't think he's going to give it up. So if we do find out that Ken Dorsey takes over. I'm not going to come on here and apologize for my takes over the previous four years. I admit it when I'm wrong. You guys know that. 
I've had some awful takes over the years, some really bad ones, some real stinkers. Or I then have to remind people that I'm like evil Knievel. I just get paid for the attempt, and that makes me sleep well at night. But I do like getting them right more than I like getting them wrong. I don't need to get them right, but I like getting them right more than I like getting them wrong. And when you're in this business, you're going to have a lot of misses. That's how that works. And if I miss on this one, then I miss on this one. But I would imagine if Ken Dorsey ends up being the play caller, it's because Kevin Stefanski didn't have a say in that matter. And that, I think, is the part that I'm alarmed by. The entire time I believed Kevin Stefanski was more puppet than he was person in charge. I think what happens with him and the front office and Paul DePodesta and even Andrew Barry to a degree, I think they like Kevin Stefanski because Kevin Stefanski is a good employee. He's a good employee. He will do what you need to do. He will do your bidding, so to speak. He's not going to, uh, you know, he won't, he won't try to do anything to upset the apple cart. Okay. He's going to toe the company line. He's not going to be a mess at any sort of co- uh, corporate event you might have. He's going to look what he's going to look and seem the part of a head coach, but he's also going to be able to do what you want him to do. And I was hoping that maybe Kevin Stefanski now being on his fifth year in the NFL and winning two coach of the year awards, if it ends up going down that way, I was hoping he had built up a little bit more for himself where he had more say. Now, maybe he has. We don't know these answers. But what I'm getting from Jason tells me that he hasn't made any sort of headway in that department, and I'm a little worried about that. 216-474-0092. I'm concerned about the fact that it doesn't seem like he's made any headway uh, from day one that he got here. Day one, we all knew why he got the job. They needed stability. They needed the adult in the room that they'd been talking about. And honestly, after Freddie Kitchens, it was kind of nice to see somebody that went up to the podium and didn't try to turn it into a Saturday Night Live bit. You know, after Freddie Kitchens, it kind of was nice seeing somebody that you knew was uh, going to be professional at all times, wasn't going to wear Pittsburgh started at T-shirts, and was going to be able to do just an honest hard day's work. It was nice. It was nice. They hired him. They knew they could control him. And what had me worried about what Jason had to say there is it's giving off the impression that Kevin Stefanski is still being controlled, that Kevin Stefanski won't have an opinion in this when it's said and done. And I don't know, maybe my roundabout theory that Cam Newton co-signed the Ken Dorsey hire to Deshaun and then Deshaun went to the Browns and said, hey, I talked to Cam Newton. He loves Ken Dorsey. We should hire Ken Dorsey is probably more baked in reality than it isn't. 216474 to below 92. Jason also went on to say more about everything around this situation. Here we go. I don't think he would make that so change. Did he make- we don't have the clarity on that. I don't want to say something that I don't know 100%, but I have strong suspicions that this wasn't entirely his call. Yeah. I don't think you think it was. You think he said, you know what? I've had enough with play calling. I think I'm done with it. Alex, you're out. I'm going to go find someone else I trust to call plays. And like Ken fits Deshaun because I was talking to people in Buffalo, like Ken Dorsey calls all shotgun. Like that's what he does. And we know that's what Deshaun likes is all shotgun. Ken also is not a trick play gadget play guy at all. We know Kevin is. Kevin loves the trick plays. He loves the catch him off guard, misdirection, whatever. Ken Dorsey does not call any jet sweeps. Like running backs run the ball, receivers catch the ball, quarterback throws the ball. Mm-hmm. It's very basic. It's very bland. I'm not saying that's good or bad. It's the way that he has operated in Buffalo. So there are some stark differences. Now, you want to tailor your offense around your talent every time. Yes, of course you do. I would also say if you're a $230 million quarterback and you've seen this offense have all the success it is, if you're really that good, how can you not have success? in the system. It's not a very hard system. It's not very complicated. 
was Jason Lloyd on the morning show. It's fascinating for a couple different reasons. I, I, so when we talked to Joe DiBiase from Buffalo, he gave me a little bit of a different impression than Ken Dorsey. Now, obviously, there's some parts of what he said and then what Joe said that kind of cross over, right? Like Jason kind of gave it the impression that maybe he was a little predictable, which is the, a lot of the terms that came out with Ken Dorsey out of Buffalo was that he was very predictable. And he wasn't really doing much in the way of Josh Allen, let's say. Josh Allen's got one of the best arms, if not the best arm in the NFL. And Ken Dorsey kind of put a muzzle on it. You know, Ken Dorsey kind of limited it. He turned his his howitzer into a a squirt gun, right? Like he just he just made the best part of Josh Allen when it came to his arm and just kind of limited it. Two one six four seven four to below ninety two, and that's too bad. I don't want the same thing to happen to Deshaun. But why would we all of a sudden take the best parts of Kevin Stefanski and then say no thank you in favor of Ken Dorsey? Does Deshaun want that? Deshaun wants out a, shot, a shotgun, sure. I don't know why Kevin Stefanski can't implement some of the things and then we meet in the middle. I do agree that you should be tailoring what you do based off of the quarterback and based off of what they do best, not what you do best. Deshaun's the one making $230 million, not you. There's a reason why he's making $230 million. But I understand Jason's point. If you're that good, you should be able to work within any construct. Like, if I am a great barber, for instance, then it doesn't matter if I'm cutting hair on 12-year-olds or 45-year-olds or 75-year-olds. It doesn't doesn't matter whose hair I'm cutting. I'm cutting good hair. I can do it. I'm good at it. It shouldn't matter whose hair I'm cutting. Now, there are differences, though. I think that we go a little bit farther here. Certain people have different type of hairstyles, right? Like, like it's, not, it's not as easy. Some people cut men's hair. Some people cut women's hair. It's not a catch-all. And I think that's maybe where some of this is is not overlapping in the best way imaginable. It's not as simple as saying because you're a great football player, you're supposed to just work in any sort of construct. Josh Allen worked to a degree in what Ken Dorsey wanted him to do, but that was not what Ken that was not what Josh Allen ever thrived in or was ever supposed to thrive in. You got to find a way to put these guys in the situation that makes them their very best and gives them the best chance to succeed. And I don't know that the Browns are doing that consistently enough. At least with Deshaun Watson. But I do think Kevin Savansky can get there. Maybe this will be the wake-up call that he needs. I don't know. Maybe for a week or so, Alex Van Pelt being gone and out the door sobers him up a little bit. And he just kind of realizes to himself, hey, maybe my football life can come to an end awfully quick. That's another thing I'd love to find out, too. If we're talking about who hired Ken Dorsey, who's the one that fired Alex Van Pelt? I know when we talked to Albert Breer I was on Afternoon Drive, and I asked Albert that question, and I thought he gave a pretty good answer. But by all accounts, Kevin Stefanski really appreciated and respected the job that Alex Van Pelt was doing. He can't stay with him forever. We haven't had a, an OC be on the same team since 2022 across all of the NFL. The job is you're hired to either get promoted to be a head coach or you get fired. That's the gig of being an OC, but... Lot changed in this past year. Two one six four seven four to below ninety two on Twitter. There you can find me. I am at Jay Peterlin. There's been a big change in the Big Ten coaching ranks. Nick Wilson, Spencer German, have you covered during the new Sons of the Shoe episode? Follow Sons of the Shoe ninety two three the fan dot com, the Odyssey app, and wherever you get your podcast. Fan focus coming up at nine o'clock. It is overtime with Jonathan Peterlin. Just talking about some of the comments Jason Lloyd made to the morning show, and I think stripping Stefanski of his play calling. 
and not letting him have a say in that decision is the easiest way to get him to leave the moment his value is up high enough. When people do things in the shadows like that, I mean, listen, Stefanski didn't have a chance. He did the opposite of what you saw Ben Johnson and Bobby Slowick do over the previous week. Ben Johnson reportedly offered a, a deal by the commanders, and then he turns it down. Maybe the money wasn't right. Who's to say? He turns it down to stay with the Detroit Lions. Bobby Slowick signs on to stay with the Houston Texans. Typically, when you get your chance to be a head coach, you take that opportunity, right? Bobby Slowick, Ben Johnson, both said thanks, but no thanks. Kevin Stefanski, a couple years ago, when he signed with the Browns, took the very first and only opportunity that was presented to him. He had absolutely zero leverage in the NFL. It was still a question mark as to whether or not he could do it. But he knew, even though the Browns were like an elephant graveyard, he knew he had to take that job and then try to make it all work. That was non-negotiable for Kevin Stefanski. Because Kevin Stefanski had been a one-year offensive coordinator, and it's not like he lit the world on fire. He had very good players around him. They did a good job, but it's not like he himself lit the world on fire that year. He was good, not great. But he got the job because he's smart, and he got the job because his play calling looked solid, and obviously he was the right hire. There's no denying that. He was the right hire for the right time for the right gig for the Browns. But at that point, he had no say. If you strip him of his play calling, you take away what I think he believes he does very his very best at, and then you start making all these different changes. You get rid of Alex Van Pelt. You make all sorts of other little changes here and there. Eventually, you're going to tire the man out. And you're going to wear him out. And he's going to look around one day and say, why am I here? At some point, he will have built up enough equity across the NFL that he could take this job and go anywhere else. You know, Frank Wright gets fired in Indianapolis. He made it to the postseason once with Andrew Luck. Goes four years without happening, uh, doing anything else. And he gets hired by Carolina in a, in a New York minute. Because he built up a resume. He built up a good enough learning curve. And the NFL trusted him that he knew what he was doing when it came to the play calling duties. He had a lot of bad quarterbacks. He was different. He was given, uh, what you could argue was a raw hand the same way you could argue that Kevin Stefanski in his time here has been given a raw hand as well. Baker into Deshaun Watson is not what we would call a fairy tale for any head coach. It's not the worst, but it's not a fairy tale. Wouldn't you think in a couple years, if Stefanski built enough up, you'd bolt for a higher paying job, one that Let's him call plays. One that then doesn't control him like a puppet. That's where we're headed. All right, leave that there. We come on back. I want to, uh, you know, talk a little bit about what I, I'm seeing for the Super Bowl, and I'm not going to go into a, a, a deep Super Bowl analysis or anything like that. We got a bunch of time to do that, but I do want to talk about Patrick Mahomes and two one six four seven four to below ninety two. I'm a little bothered by the I won't count out Mahomes ever crowd, and I'll explain what my beef is. It's overtime with Jonathan Beadle here with you on the fan. The two one six four seven four to below ninety two is how you get a hold of us. Uh, I just before we get to the Patrick Mahomes thing, I did want to comment a little bit because I saw Greg Olson making the rounds today. Greg Olson, and I don't know how much you guys care about this. I do feel like broadcasters talk about broadcasters an awful ton, and I I get interested in, in it because I'm in broadcasting. I have no idea how interested you guys are or aren't. I, I tend to believe. I think Joe Buck put it best. Joe Buck one time was like, I, no one tunes in to hear me. If the Masters is on, the Masters is going to get 20 million people, whether uh, Jim Nance is calling it or whether I'm calling it, it doesn't matter at all. 
No one's in on a game because of the broadcaster. Now, I do think the broadcasters can help and hurt in certain moments, but it's not the reason why you turn off or on a national big-time NFL game or the Masters or the NBA Finals or Major League Baseball's World Series. It's not why you do it. And I saw Greg Olson making the rounds, and my only thought, so Greg Olson right now is like the bell of the broadcasting ball. And for a while there, like Pat McAfee was the guy that couldn't miss. It feels like right now Greg Olson is the guy that couldn't miss. I've learned anything in this broadcasting business, though. Grand opening, grand closing. They love you until they don't. And it happens really, really quickly with broadcasters and in particular with color commentators when we talk about these sports. I think Greg Olson would be wise to end up on Thursday Night Football, get the Amazon gig, hang out with Al Michaels as Al Michaels rides off in the sunset. And then when Al goes, you know, you you get a new partner and you start fresh and you do that for 25 years. Give some juice to those Thursday night games. I think it's a great idea for everybody involved. And I don't think Kirk Herbstreet would take, uh, you know, the backseat part of this as some sort of insult. Herbstreet can do it simply. Herbstreet can just say, "I, I took on more than I could chew. I appreciate Amazon and the money they gave me and everything else. I'm going to step aside. I'm going to get back to my college football where my roots are, and uh, that's what I'm going to do for the next 20 years. Thank you for uh, coming to my TED Talk. I, I mean, it's going to be it'll be easy. It'll be very very simple if you're uh, if you're you know Herb Street to do that. It's difficult for everyone else. Collinsworth on NBC and Sunday Night Football is going absolutely nowhere. Tony Romo, although many people, this is why I talk about, uh, you know, where they love you until they don't. Tony Romo was beloved to the point where he got a 10-year, $180 million deal. And now Tony Romo can't walk down the street without people throwing tomatoes at him. I mean, uh, Tony Romo is not beloved in the moment. I actually thought he had a good weekend for himself. I thought he did a couple nice plays, had a couple nice calls. But that's fine, neither here nor there. You guys are done with Tony Romo. You don't like the parlor trick of it all attached to it. I get it. But Tony Romo's going nowhere. Collinsworth is going nowhere. And then Troy Aikman has earned the right in what I believe to be the gold standard now for broadcasting in that booth between Joe Buck and Troy Aikman. He has earned the right to be there for as long as he wants to be there. That is unquestionable. He, Him and Joe Buck have made Monday Night Football great. And it, it was in a real downward spiral ever since, like, you know, Dennis Miller. Actually, one time I board up to it when uh, in a station in Chicago, one of my first radio jobs, I worked for a conservative news station in Chicago because you just take whatever job you can get at that point. I was like 22 right out of college, and I was trying to find full-time radio, like on-air jobs. Uh, but I, I you know, had done some work at 670 The Score, and so I got – anyway, my mom got me hooked up at this board hopping job. It's the only nepotism I've had in my life. My broadcasting career has been made entirely by me. When you go to Haver, Montana, there's no strings anyone is pulling for you there, okay? There's no strings going to Wichita or Houston or ending up here. But the one string my mom did pull for me in life was getting me that board hopping job, fresh out of college, 22 years old in Chicago. And I was part time. It wasn't anything. Right. But like it ended up being a little bit more. And I ended up doing a lot of shows in regards to like board hopping. And I was board hopping Dennis Miller's show. And Dennis Miller was hysterical. Absolutely hysterical. And I always thought he was really funny in Monday Night Football, too. It just it didn't belong in a booth. It didn't belong anywhere. Like, Jason Witten didn't belong in a booth either. You find these things out. Booker McFarland didn't belong in a booth either. You find these things out. Greg Olson is so good, he'll find his spot. 
But I just there was empathy attached to Greg Olson as he went on Dan Patrick and he went on Colin Coward and he was going on all the different shows all throughout the day. I just he was on McAfee as well. I just I, I kept seeing him everywhere and I'm like, congratulations to you for striking while the iron is hot. But in two years, the football world is going to turn on you and it's not going to be your fault. He's the more prepared, less funny Tony Romo. That'll last. It'll get you paid a lot, but eventually people are going to turn on you. Two one six four seven four to below ninety two. Uh, one other thing I want to talk about: we have the fan focus coming up at nine o'clock. Uh, but for right now, we have the Cavs game and everything. When that ends, we'll get to that as well. I'm a little bothered by the "I won't count out Mahomes ever" crowd because two weeks ago, half of you guys didn't exist. I hate to be like this is how I am with Taylor Swift, and it, it sounds very hipster of me, and that's okay. How I am with Taylor Swift, I told this story yesterday, I'll tell it again. I believe I was one of the first people to really, truly latch on to Taylor Swift. I heard her very first song. Again, my mom was a country music DJ. I was driving down Lakeshore Drive, 16 years old, heard a song called Tim McGraw, and I thought to myself, she's going to make it. She's an absolute star. And again, it's not it's not like I discovered her in any sort of way. It's like if you watched LeBron James at 15 at the at the gym, you're like, oh, dude has it. It's like, you, know, you think? You think he's got it? Yeah, the guy's got it. Pretty good. I knew instantly Taylor Swift had something the other artists didn't have. But, like, I go back to when she was a country music singer is how far I go back with Taylor Swift. And I'm always, anytime I hear, like, new people talk about Taylor Swift and how long they've been Swifties and all that stuff, I get a little defensive. And I am a little bit of a hipster when it comes to that. I was like, no, I was on it first. I was there. It doesn't matter. It's a dumb thing. It doesn't matter. But there is a part of me. I don't ever voice it, but there's a part of me that I think to myself, you weren't there. Sorry. With Mahomes, I feel the exact same way. I have, from the time he started playing that first year in Kansas City, believed he was something special, believed he was different. I'll never forget, Baskin and Phelps had the voice of the Texas Tech Raiders on And they had him on before the draft process. And the voice of the Texas Tech football team was like, yeah, yeah, Mahomes isn't that special, guys. Like, he's not, like, he, he basically dogged Mahomes while being as polite and, uh, while trying to stay employed with the team that he is calling these games for. He was about as, as polite as you could get in that respect. But he basically dogged Patrick Mahomes if you read between the lines. I remember thinking, all right, maybe he's not that good. And then he sat behind Alex Smith. And then the first year, you just watched him, and he's doing these sidearm passes, and he's making these plays nobody else has ever seen. And I just, I'm like, I'm a believer. I'm, a, it's, I don't need to see anymore. I'm an absolute. It's all I want, and I'm, I'm gonna die with the belief that Patrick Mahomes is gonna become an all-time great quarterback. And then you fast forward a couple years, and he's winning Super Bowls, and he's going to the AFC title games. And I'm sitting here, and I'm just repeating the same things over and over again. I'm like, I guys. He's going to beat Brady. He's going to be he's going to be the very best to ever do it. And nobody wanted to believe it. And now everywhere I turn, everyone is just like, oh, never count out Patrick Mahomes. Never doubted Patrick Mahomes. Oh, you did it. Have you seen the betting lines for the last six Chiefs playoff games? Because that would tell a very different story relative to the story that everyone's trying to tell. 22 AFC title games, Cincinnati's favored by a point and a half. 22 Super Bowl, Philadelphia's favored by a point and a half. 
23 wild card game. That is the game against Miami where Tua basically, Tua can't exist in the cold and everyone knew it. That's the one game they were favored out of five out of the last six. The divisional game, Buffalo's favored by two and a half. Baltimore favored by four and a half. And the line that I checked today on the 49ers game for the Super Bowl, San Francisco, as we are currently speaking, is either a one and a half point favorite and depending on the book, a one point favorite for the bleeping Super Bowl. Even as of right now, as I'm telling you guys, I don't believe you when you say I'm in the I won't count out Mahomes ever crowd because you constantly you just change your mind and your opinions like the wind goes. I'm led to believe that I'm on an island once again. And the island's not as occupied as I thought it was. I think we get there. I can imagine a week from now me having to do the same defense of Patrick Mahomes that I had to do before the Baltimore game, that I had to do before the Buffalo game, that I had to do before the Miami game. It's going to be wash, rinse, repeat. I know how this ends. I get it. A week from today, we'll be talking about the Super Bowl. We'll be getting ready for the Super Bowl. We'll be having guests on for the Super Bowl. And by the time we get far enough removed from what happened in Buffalo, or excuse me, in Baltimore and Buffalo, we are going to have conversations that are centered around the idea that, hey, Brock Purdy might just be the greatest thing since sliced bread. Christian McCaffrey, how great is he? This 49ers defense, wow, how spectacular have they been? Nobody messes with the Bosa and everything else you can come up with. Debo Samuel, one of a kind. Ayuk, how about that? He can catch the ball off his helmet. I mean, we're going to get all sorts of different things like that all day long. And you guys are going to fall into the same trap that you've fallen into for five out of the last six postseason games that Mahomes has played in. And in that stretch, that is the stretch since he played the Bengals in the AFC title game. He has not thrown an interception. He has been sacked at a criminally low rate. And he has been awesome. Absolutely awesome. It's maddening to me. It's maddening to me. If you show me the receipts, I'll believe you. I can't figure out why we got there. Mahomes is one of a kind in my mind. I can't figure out why he was doubted. I think it's just because enough people don't like his brother. You don't like his wife. You think the other part is uh, maybe they don't want to see greatness and watch others succeed. I think that's a part of Patrick Mahomes as well. I root for greatness. I love greatness and appreciate it. I always go for that. I like watching people succeed. I just think there's enough people that don't vibe with that logic. I think there's enough people out there that just, they're like, ah, that guy's having a great life. That guy's doing very well for himself. Screw that guy. And I just don't think that should be the logic people take. But ultimately, I can all but assure you, by the time we get to kick off for the Super Bowl, the I won't count out Mahomes ever crowd is going to find a way to convince themselves that Patrick Mahomes can be counted out. Now, the Brock Purdy wrinkle in this is fascinating to me, though. Is Brock Purdy the right quarterback for people to stick to their guns with the belief in Patrick Mahomes? Because I don't know what you do if you've been in the corner of Brock Purdy's assistant quarterback and not great, but you also don't believe in Patrick Mahomes. You're at like a gunfight against yourself, and it doesn't seem like anybody's going to win. That is going to be absolutely fascinating to find out what those people end up doing. I would imagine they'd set a lot of these conversations out, but imagine being a sports radio host and those are the two options you got to go through. That would be maddening. All right, 216-474 to below 92. We're coming back. We do got the fan. We have the fan focus. And uh, here's a little preview of what you're going to hear.
there is how it should be, and then there's how it will be. And those are two different paths in the conversation about things like pressure heading into a season. All right, find out what Nick was talking about and more. It's overtime with Jonathan Bidwin here with you on The Fan. 